fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. So by the time y'all are listening to this, it, uh, July 4th will have been last week. It's the time of year for parades and for military remembrances. My grandfather on my dad's side fought in World War I. My other grandfather was in the Navy during World War II. My dad was in the Army. I ended up reporting on the war in Iraq. Uh, do you have any connections with the military, Sugi, be it American or otherwise? Well, uh, my family comes from a part of Sri Lanka where the military has been present in um, traditionally minority civilian lands for, in some cases, decades. So that's just the start of what I have to say about the military there. And I've been alarmed um, to see some parallels here, you know, gratuitous displays of military strength, for example. Speaking of which, we're recording this on, we're going to record this, uh, the, the interview we're about to do on July 5th, so we know that President Trump's controversial military-enhanced July 4th parade turned out not to be as partisan as some had feared, at least not according to the reporting I read this morning, but that's just one of a number of flashpoints surrounding the current administration's relationship to the military. We've got the transgender ban, the Muslim travel ban, the resignation of his Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, his criticism of NATO, his pardon of Michael Bena, who was convicted of murder in a combat zone in 2009. Yeah, it's a long, complicated list. I don't know if we're going to get to everything, but um, we were curious, not just about our opinions on these issues, but we wanted to know how Trump looks as a commander in chief to people who've been in the military. And for that perspective, we have two guests who not only served in the Marine Corps, but are also authors of new uh, books about their experiences. In the second half of the show, we will be joined by Anuradha Bhagwati, a former Marine Corps School of Infantry instructor and author of Unbecoming, a Memoir of Disobedience. But first, we're joined by Elliot Ackerman. Elliot is the author of the novels Waiting for Eden, Dark at the Crossing, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, Green on Blue, and the 2019 memoir Places and Names on War, Revolution, and Returning. His work has appeared in Esquire, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times Magazine, among other publications. As a Marine, he served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he received the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and the Purple Heart. Elliot, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Um, during the 2016 general election, uh, you wrote uh, a terrific piece for the New Yorker titled What to Make of Military Endorsements. Can you tell us a little bit about the American tradition of having a nonpartisan military and why that tradition is important? Uh, well, I'm glad you liked the piece. Thanks for that. Um, you know, I think we have a uh, structurally organized ourselves so that from the commander-in-chief who is a civilian all the way down, we have civilian oversight of the military. And I think, you know, the idea of interjecting, you know, recently retired military officers into a political campaign, you know, is something new. And we certainly saw that in 2016 on the Republican side. We saw that in the personage of Michael Flynn, on the Democratic side, I'd say you probably saw that in the personage of General Allen, who was a retired Marine four-star general. Um, and we see it every day, you know, with the, the pundits appearing on CNN and all the other cable news networks. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. The, I mean, the, U, the U.S. military's relationship. Did that uh, not our, used to happen? Is that a, is that a I, relatively new thing? You know, in, in this – in this incarnation, it is. But at the same time, too, I mean, if we're going to be honest about it, we have to go back to like our nation's founding and our first president is a general. 
Yeah. And we have a long history of generals being presidents. So there is, of course, interplay between the military and the political. And to be too precious about it uh, would be to ignore uh, that relationship throughout our country's history, from Eisenhower you know, to Grant. I mean, there have been uh, a long series of military men who have led the country and, you know, and then served you know, in lesser capacities as well as senators and congressmen. So the, the endorsement thing isn't the only – I mean that's what you wrote about in the article was this idea of having uh, – you know, Hillary Clinton had a big list of people who endorsed her from the military similarly for, for Trump. But uh, there's also the, the tradition of being nonpartisan within the military, meaning that, um, you know, when I was uh, in Iraq as a reporter, the, I was with the Army. The soldiers that I was with were very reluctant and it was a real thing to talk politics. Um, I think they probably talk politics amongst themselves, but they there was like a living tradition of that. Hey, that's not what we're here to do. You know, I, th- I think it's an interesting evolution. So, I mean, if you go back historically, like back to you know the Civil War when regiments were raised locally and political leaders often showed up with troops serving under them, and often in many units they would elect their leaders. You know, there it really was a lot more interplay between the political side and the military side, but that was also because we had a military of citizen soldiers. Now, we don't really have that in the same way today. We have this professional military class and this civil military divide that exists. And I think because there is now this professional military class, it makes us even more leery of having our military weighing in on political issues. And in many cases, people in the military do. They sort of self-censor and will not talk about political issues. You know, I, there's some people I know, friends of mine, who say they don't vote for that reason. I think there's this idea of, you know, that they they don't want to feel like they just sort of themselves don't want to know that they're they're throwing their hat in the ring in, in one direction or another. That they kind of feel there's a purity to that. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, I myself always voted, um, but I think it speaks to kind of you know where this has evolved into. So given that our subject for this episode is the military under Trump, how is that nonpartisan tradition holding up under the current administration compared to, say, the Obama administration or Bush? Or do you have any general sense of what the Marines, which was your branch of service, think of the current administration? Uh, you know, I'm very reluctant and wouldn't suppose to to speak for all Marines. You must speak for all the Marines, <laughs> Elliot. I'm not going to try to speak for all Marines. Um, but listen, I think, you know, the, the idea that our presidents and our political leaders use the U.S. military to drive forward whatever agenda they have and will sometimes use the military as a political prop, I mean, is nothing new. It goes back to the founding of the republic. So I think when we kind of are encouraged to gasp, whether we're gasping on the left or gasping on the right, and we're encouraged to have our senses of outrage stoked over these issues. You know, I've always found it to be like kind of disingenuous. Um, you know, it's like surprise, surprise. You know, a politician wants to make a spectacle out of something. Like that's that's what they do. So, um, so you know, I apologize if I sound cynical, but I feel like there's a through line that goes from the Bush administration to the Obama administration to the Trump administration all the way back to the Kennedy administration. Um, or further back than that. Um, so I think the you know the U.S. military is always used for political leverage. Well, certainly you know we did that. We did an earlier episode. Um, it was actually our very first episode where we had Matt Gallagher on, and we were talking about um, 
you know, Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee during um, the anthem and the military's relationship with the NFL. And there is also this sort of like we're a curiously ahistorical people, which I think you're correctly pointing out in a variety of ways. But there is also this way that we think that something like it was very easy for people to put forward the narrative that say military um, honoring the military through the anthem had always been the case. And then he, he was able to point out and, and other folks were also able to point out that that was sort of the result of a specific, you know, relationship that had developed later on. So there are these ways that I feel like it, it reminds me a little bit of college. Like, you know, you go to college and you, and you, um, you know, you join some institution and they're like, well, for hundreds of years, our fraternity slash college newspaper slash um, acapella group has done things this way. And actually then like, you know, then like, then like he's comparing the Marines to an acapella group. You better watch well, out. I mean, well, it's also just like sort of American ahistoric, like ahistorical viewpoints in general. Like you're, <laughs> we're sort of able to sell very easily the notion that something has always or never happened. Yeah. And people seem to me to have really lost the ability to think about like a longer arc. And so, you know, yeah, to, to, if you tell someone that something has always happened or has never happened, they don't really check. Um, so you're very nice to refer to it as being ahistoric. I would refer to it as being uninformed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's the that's the Marilyn Robinson rhetoric um, creeping in. But yeah, I mean, I do feel like Americans know less history at this at this moment um, than they ever have before. It feels like. Yes, and I, you know, and and I think you know our our outrage has has become like has become a currency that many people trade in. Um, whether it's, you know, the media trading in it or our politicians trading it. So when you couple our, uh, and I'll use a, a historic, our, our tendency to be a historic with also our ability now to become quickly outraged, you know, on through social media, through television, through whatever media we're consuming, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a potent mix that leads to many social brouhaha's. Um, and you know, the military is just one of our institutions that can be thrown into, into the center of such controversies. I am going to say, we should point out that, uh, and we mentioned in the, in the top that, uh, you know, we're, we're recording the day after that 4th of July parade and, and Slate had a, had a piece this morning saying, you know what, that, uh, thing that, the, the, the celebration that Trump organized that we said was going to be really bad, it was okay. And I thought that was interesting because, <laughs> you know, Slate's no, no slouch at criticizing the president. And I've written for Slate and I, and I like Slate. But uh, it was interesting Like that was it didn't turn out to be the thing that people thought that it was going to be. But I yeah. do wonder if you feel like there are differences and we're going to try to get to some specific instances between the way this administration deals with the military and past administrations. Or do you feel like it's all on a continuum? No, I think I mean, listen, I think this administration and our president in particular, his style is pretty vulgar and it, you know, causes many, many people, myself included, to oftentimes recoil. Um, usually after I see something and after I've sort of had my moment of recoil, I try to calm down, look at it and say, you know, why am I finding this so offensive? Am I finding this offensive on the substance or on the style? And if I feel like I'm finding it offensive on the substance, then I will, you know, I guess I will listen to my initial instinct, was, which was to recoil. There are other times where I'll find, you know what, I actually am finding this more offensive on the style than anything else, you know, and then I will try to, you know, to parse what my opinion is. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because it's been one of those points of outrage and discussion, and maybe you can give us a level-headed sort of perspective on it, is the way that 
uh, President Trump has injected himself in discussions of um, around different courts martial uh, proceedings, one involving Michael Banna, whom he uh, pardoned, and then more recently a Navy SEAL named Edward Gallagher, who was acquitted of all but one count of, of war crimes. Is that very different than what Bush or Obama or previous presidents would have done in cases like that? Absolutely. And this is like when I kind of go back to my like style slash substance calculus, where this is one where I think it's appalling, but the style of it is appalling and the substance is appalling. Okay. Um, you know, we have a we have a judicial process here and those 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 courts martial need to play out. Um, the president shouldn't be putting his fingers on the scale when he puts his fingers on the scale. The style of it is, well, I'm just supporting the troops. Well, guess what? I mean, by by showing leniency to possible war criminals, you're really not supporting the troops. You're, in fact, doing the exact opposite thing of the, what you profess to be doing, which is the troops who aren't committing war crimes who have been tasked with a mission and are overseas trying to do that mission and are living every day among whomever, Afghans, Iraqis, whoever, you know, they are going to be held to account about what your president is doing. And you're not helping them out if it seems as though there is a rigged justice system when it comes to Americans who perpetrate crimes on foreign shores. So, um, again, you know, without getting into the specifics of those cases, you know, there are a lot of people working really hard, risking their lives, sometimes getting killed to follow these rules of engagement and to act appropriately in very difficult, very complex situations. And when someone egregiously outs- acts outside those rules, and then when the commander in chief swoops in, puts their fingers on the scale uh, to exonerate that person, you know, it's a slap in the face to all the people who worked so hard to follow the rules and to behave appropriately. And also, of course, a slap in the face to the civilians who are dealing with these populations. Um, and I think that it's interesting to think about it as putting your fingers on this, putting his fingers on the scale, because I think that, right, I mean, it seems to me also that like what Trump is doing, well, I mean, Trump in particular is doing is and he has this sort of rhetoric of, you know, he's never wrong. And um, he extends that as kind of like a mantle of protection to the people who are who are allied with him um, or who he wants to be allied with him. And the military has a tradition of respecting checks and balances, even in, um, you know, with it's with court martials, um, with certain kinds of accountability. It seems to me like accountability is actually really important to the way the military operates. And um, and he seems not interested in that. I'm interested to, to hear you to go back to some of what you were saying about outrage or sort of the idea of trying to like sort of take a level headed view of some of this sort of stuff. Like, what do you think when you're when there is outrage about the military or in relation to the military? Like, what is the is there any value to any of that? Like, has that ever provided a valuable check or balance? Well, I think the, the U.S. military is something that people feel I would say, is an institution that people feel sentimental about in different ways. But it's one with which there is probably more emotion associated than with, let's say, like, I don't know, the U.S. Department of Transportation. No. <laughs> I'm going to go out on time here. Stay with me, guys. So I think that you know, if, you be- if you believe, like I believe, that you could define politics, that all politics is the, either the maintenance or acquisition of power. I think that's like a definition of politics. And I think there are two ways that you can maintain or acquire power. One is by uniting people. It's very difficult to do. I would argue maybe like Obama did it in 08. I don't think he did it in 2012. Uh, Tough to do. Um, And the other is by dividing people. And the way you divide people is pretty easy. Um, You basically say, there's a group of people over there 
and they are going to take away whatever you have or do. You know, they're the ones causing your problems. It's fear, you know, and fear manifests as outrage. And that, by and large, sadly, is the currency that both sides of the political divide uh, deal in. And so I don't, I don't know if about you guys, but I can certainly feel it when I turn on the television or I read a news story or that there is messaging that I am receiving every day that encourages me to feel that type of outrage. Um, and, you know, in most cases, I don't want to engage. It's Again, it's that, that sort of style versus substance thing. And a lot of the style I feel coming at me and what I consume is this, you need to be outraged because of X, Y, and Z when the substance doesn't necessarily back it up. So early on in Places and Names, you introduced readers to Abed, your translator, and someone he met at a refugee camp, Abu Hassar. Throughout the re- we see these characters throughout the rest of the book. Can you sort of talk about, frame them for us and talk about their importance to the story and how they sort of knit together the different passages here? Um, well, Abed was a friend of my, is a friend of mine, and uh, he, he and I met in southern Turkey, and he had been a democratic activist in the Syrian revolution's early days in 2011 and 2012. Um and one day he'd been working down in a refugee camp uh, called the Chocolate Refugee Camp, which is right on the Turkish-Syrian border. And he came into uh, the place where we were living. And he basically said, you know, Elliot, I was down in a chocolate today. And I met a guy I really think you should meet. And I said, OK, Abed, like, who's the guy? He said, well, he fought for al-Qaeda in Iraq. But, like, I think the two of you would really get along. <laughs> OK. So for anything, I said, OK. Um, and his name was Abu Hassar. And so Abed and I arranged a meeting with Abu Asar and turned into a series of meetings um, over several years that I write about in the book. Um, and Abu Hassar had run guns and fighters for al-Qaeda in Iraq in some of the same years I had fought there. Um, and through a confluence of events that I get into in the book, had wound up in a refugee camp in southern Turkey. And he, although he was no longer engaged in jihad, uh, he was still ideologically very much a subscriber to this radical brand uh, of Islam that at that time the emerging Islamic state was preaching. However, he and I had this connection, which is we, you know, we had both fought in the same war, albeit on opposite sides, and had sort of had this shared defining experience, and I think had a real curiosity about who who each of us was in relation to the I thought that was an amazing passage from the book, and I haven't read really very many things like that. I wondered if you could just read to us a part of it. You know, so this comes to, at the end of my first meeting with Abu Hassar, and we've been talking for probably three or four hours at this point. Uh, and Abed has been translating for us the entire time because I don't speak Arabic and Abu Hassar doesn't speak English. And in a certain moment, Abed just needs a break and he excuses himself. So Abed excuses himself and goes to the restroom out back. Abu Hassar and I sit next to each other on the same side of the table. Without our interpreter, the space between us becomes awkward. I open my notebook to a clean page. I begin to draw. First, I sketch out a long, oscillating ribbon running from the top left to the bottom right of the page, the Euphrates. Abu Hassar quickly recognizes this. He takes the pencil from my hand and draws the straight borderline between Iraq and Syria, one that cuts through a tabletop of hard pan desert. Along the border he's made, I write a single name, Al-Qaim. Next to that name, Abu Hassar writes some numbers, 06, 2005. 
I nod back and write 09, 2004. I travel farther down the Euphrates and write another name and another date. Our hands now chase each other's around the map, mimicking the way we'd once chased each other around this country. Haditha, 07-2004, slash 02-2005. Hit, 10-2004, slash 11-2006. On it goes. Only the dates and place names matter. These are a common language to us, one not even Abed can translate. Had I understood Arabic or had Abu Hassar understood English, I don't think we would have spoken. The small log we make on these two notebook pages contains the truth of our experience. Soon we filled most of the map. Between us, one thing is missing. We have many places that overlap, nearly all of them, but we don't have a single date that does. Abu Hassar looks at me for a moment. I think he's noticed this too. Neither of us says or tries to say anything about it, but I think we are both grateful, or at least I am. Abed comes back from the restroom. I turn my notebook to a clean page. Before we can resume our conversation, the waiter brings out a large silver tray with our lunch. He lays down three different types of lamb kebab, two plates of kebab, flatbread and salads. Then another server comes behind him, carrying a picture of iron, a yogurt drink. He pours this into three ornate chalices that look like Turkish knockoffs of the Wimbledon Cup. The cold iron frosts as it is poured. As I look down my nose at it, Abu Hassar says, Remember the Prophet's wisdom. Perfume, a good pillow, and yogurt cannot be refused. He takes a tremendous sip from his cup, the froth sticking to his mustache. Abed drinks too, but before he does, he looks at me and smiles. I take a drink, knowing I have to, and thinking of Cipro. We eat with our hands, and Abu Hassar asks, When were you the most afraid in Iraq? His question stops me. I've been asked what was the worst thing I'd seen in Iraq, cats eating people. I've been asked what was the bravest thing I'd seen in Iraq, everything Marines do for wounded Marines. I've even been asked by an elderly society lady if I'd killed anyone in Iraq. If I did, you paid me to. But no one has ever asked me when I was the most afraid. I put down my food. It doesn't take long for me to find the answer. Getting lost, I say. Abu Asar gives me a confused look. So does Abed. As an officer, I explain, I was always leading patrols. Sometimes we'd be in the middle of nowhere, just our column of Humvees and nothing but desert. Even with a GPS, it was easy to get disoriented in a wadi or to, make, or to mistake one trail for another. Getting on the radio, telling everyone to stop and turn around because I was lost. The shame of that was my greatest fear. Abu Hassar and Abed both give me sympathetic looks, as if they recognize some lost part of me in the way I tell this story now. There are other things I could have told them. The time my platoon got cut off and surrounded in a house in Fallujah, or when a truck of Afghan soldiers was torn apart in front of me by a rocket-propelled grenade. All of this had scared me. But if fear is like a disease, these incidents were the 24-hour flu. Quick, unpleasant, but passing. The great fears are chronic, never abating, threatening to wear you down. I'm still afraid of getting lost. You should see the map software on my phone. God put this fear into you, says Abu Hassar. You fought in a country that wasn't yours. You are already lost. Thank you so much. Um, I really 
appreciate that passage in particular because of how it shows that people can communicate in all sorts of ways when language isn't available to them. And yeah, that that image of the two of you looking at the map is astonishing. And it reminds me, um, that passage of Green on Blue, which has sections told from the point of view of Afghan characters. And it makes sense to me why you'd want to meet with Abu Hassar. But could you talk a little bit about why it was important to you and, and what you learned from that n- not exactly conversation? These wars for our generation um, were not generationally defining. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have like the First World War, you have the Lost Generation, or the Second World War, or even Vietnam. Um, but people who are of my generation, I would not, I would say most of them not say they were defined by the 9-11 wars. Um, however, there's a part of the generation that certainly was, and I would count myself a, of that part. Um, and when you've been defined by something, you're curious about the people, the other people who were involved in it. Um, and I knew that there was an Abu Hassar out there, or many of Abu Hassars out there, meaning the people who had I'd fought against, who had defined me in this way. Because I think when you're when you're in war and you're fighting one, it's like a dance. Um, it's sort of like a shadow dance, and that you never see your partner, but you can feel them acting against you. And so then, you know, ten years later in southern Turkey, when Abed walked in that day, you know, and said, "I met an interesting guy." Uh, you know, I, for the first time, had the chance to meet, you know, that partner, that person I've been engaged in the shadow dance with. And that entire meeting was predicated on this gamble that just as he had defined me and I could feel that instinctually and that desire to meet him as well, that having also defined him, he would have a similar desire to sit across the table from me and talk about all of these issues and these questions as simple as, you know, when were you the most afraid? So when you talk about this, I can't help but think of both the effect of the draft, right? You were talking before about a a professional soldier class. And, you know, you also mentioned generations defined by war. And of course, like, we're in a generation um, that where we don't have a draft um, at the moment. And also the nature of warfare has changed. So, you know, when you have a dance partner who you haven't met, of course, there have been other wars where that's been true. But there's also been sort of more... um, face-to-face and and or manned combat where people are coming into closer contact with each other. Well, you talk about the Christmas truce uh, to Abu Hassar, right? Uh, right. From World War One, which is sort yeah. of what Sugi's talking about. Yeah. Well, I think it kind of becomes, I think the desire to meet him mm-hmm. is more acute because, um, you know, if I had come back to home in a generation where we'd all been defined in the same way, that gap in my understanding wouldn't, I, I think, would not have felt as acute. But because I came back to a world where, and a, you know, a country where the experience had not been a shared one, it almost became more of a niche experience, something that was a little bit more rarefied. And I wanted to go to a place where it wasn't a niche experience and to be with a generation of people for whom they had all been defined by it. And that is what I found in Abu Hassar and in Abed and in traveling through the Middle East was that I had more in common with this generation than I felt I did with my own based only on the fact that we'd all been defined in the same way. It's interesting to think about in this conversation, both Trump and Obama ran as opponents to the war in Iraq 
I'm curious about what you think about that. If they were right, was it a good idea for us to leave Iraq in 2011? No, I've always believed that the you know the great strategic blunder of the Bush administration was putting the troops into Iraq, and the great strategic blunder of the Obama administration was pulling all of the troops out of Iraq. Um, I think that you know we as Americans seem to have this conception of war. Maybe it comes out of the, the you know the Second World War, but I don't know where it, it it came to our consciousness that the war is over when the troops come home. That seems to be what we believe. But it's never happened. It's never been the case. I mean, in the Second World War, the troops didn't really come home. We, you know, we created bases all over all over Europe and the world in the wake of the Second World War to secure the peace. You know, same thing in Korea. The troops never came home. The troops did all come home from Vietnam because we so squarely lost that war. Um, and so there's this idea of you know how do you secure the peace? And so. You know, I believe that we pulled all of the troops out of Iraq in 2011. That was a mistake. We should have left some type of residual force behind. Um, and I think that when Trump talks about ending the wars, I applaud that. I think we should end the wars. But if he's talking about ending the wars in a way where just every single American comes home and we just leave those parts of the world up to the influence of other powers, I think it's a huge mistake. Um, I hope that one of these days we'll have a president who will – sit down with the nation and explain of how you can win a war, bring the troops home, secure a peace, while not often also abandoning the people in the region for whom we've supported for many years, but who've also supported us. Yeah, I, I was in Iraq in 2010 to cover sort of the drawdown. And it, what amazed me was a couple of things that it was incredibly calm uh, compared to 2006 which was when I had been there before. Um, we took a long trip up to Mosul from uh, Joint Base Balad. Nothing happened. No ID problems. And the, guy, the guys I was with had not seen any problems at all. We, were, we visited like a, a joint uh, group of like Kurds and Sunnis and Shias who were working to repair a highway intersection. I just thought, oh my God, this is what we should have been doing. This is useful. Um, and then, of course, I saw the photo, the footage of Mosul. We were we, went, we were up near Mosul after, you know, ISIS had taken over Mosul, and then they had been driven out, and it was just destruction. And I just, it was so incredibly de- depressing to see. I wonder what that was like. Did you feel the same way? Um, I did, and I felt that you know we were probably going to have to pay for the same real estate twice. Um, but you know, these, these are difficult issues. So, I mean, one of the challenges is because to have that peace, you have to have a situation where American service members aren't dying. You know, so, I mean, we have troops in Germany and have had them there for years and, you know, and they're not facing IEDs and dying. So it's once you stabilize the security situation enough, you then, I think as a country need to figure out, okay, what is the right, what are the right force levels to have to make sure that we can secure the peace that we've created? What we often do is we secure the peace and then just leave. And Syria is, I mean, you write a lot about Syria in uh, Places and Names, and that is sort of, I mean, there's, there's a connection, right, between what you're talking about and what's happening in Syria now. There's a huge, I mean, listen, when, you're, when you talk about the Islamics, the Islamic State, I mean, although the Islamic State is on its heels, but when the Islamic State was rising, there's a connection between Syria and Iraq because the Islamic State doesn't even recognize the validity of the two as countries. Right. You know, their mission was to destroy Sykes-Picot, and modern-day Syria and Iraq are creations of Sykes-Picot. 
you know, it's the Islamic State and the Levant. Their vision was like the caliphate that extended all the way to the Mediterranean. Um, so those two conflicts are very much intertwined. You know, our, our, our Americanized narrative is that there, you know, there's the war in Iraq, the war in Syria, but there it feels much more just like one large war. And I think that is probably a, a, a closer representation of what's going on there is what you're really witnessing is an existential crisis for the future of that region and what it's going to look like. So you were awarded the Silver Star. Um, my grandfather was awarded that as well. And I, I, his commendation letter, which was from October 7th, 1918, talks about him rescuing the body of a first lieutenant, J.H. Carter, from electrified wire near the enemy's trenches, which in World War One is a completely crazy thing to do. Um, I was sitting last night with my dad and my aunt and asked if they knew why he had done that. Like, was that a friend of his? What was the motivation? Like, what was going on? And they had no idea because he'd never talked about it. So that, like, part of history is lost. And I wonder, in your collection, at the very last piece, you notate your summary of action for that award. I was wondering what your motivation for was doing that. Is it to try to avoid that kind of blankness that, that, that is the blankness of my grandfather's war experience or something else? Um, well, the last chapter, it's the last chapter of the book. Um, you know, I originally wasn't in the book, that chapter. Um, so I turn in the book. My publisher was happy with it. They were, you know, going to publish it. We're delighted. And then, um, you know, my editor, uh, kind of Scott Moyers is great. Sat me down, you know, I went a cup of coffee and he basically said, Hey, listen, I want to talk to you about one thing. He's like there, you know, you don't write about the silver star and that's fine. I imagine it's a decision you made, but I feel like I'd be remiss as your editor. If I didn't tell you that, you know, I think it'd be a better book if you could figure out a way to write about that. And I had the summary of action on that award that went into a lot of detail, but it goes into that detail with, you know, this very stilted military language. Um, and, you know, I wanted to annotate it and say, you know, this is what was really going on. This is what it felt like, smelt like, tasted like. This is what I was thinking. Um, and that summary of action to me, it, it was like a key to go into the experience uh, one more time. I have one last question. I don't know if we'll have time to keep this in the show, but one of the other stories that, because this, the, the, the last part of that essay, you talk about having the uniform that you wore when you were in Fallujah and that you kept it. And I had an opposite story that was the one story that I do know about my grandfather's war experience in World War One was that he came to a hotel in France. He, when he got out of the army, he rented two rooms. He bought himself a suit. He went into one. He took the uniform off, took a bath, walked in the next room, put the suit on, and never went back and got the uniform. I wondered if that desire to not remember, how that relates to the desire to remember. You know, I I believe that um, and one of the re- that that war is part of human nature, and that there have always been wars, and there will probably always be wars. Sad, sad as that is. And um, when I was a kid, I was interested in the military and I read a lot of books. I read books like I read Tim O'Brien's book. I read Jim Webb's uh, Fields of Fire. Uh, and I feel like you know, those guys, the Vietnam guys, were sort of, they were custodians of that memory. And that when the war's over and you come back, you, know, you also, at a certain degree, become custodians of the memory. And I, at some, at some future point, the United States will probably find itself marching off to war again. 
And the most recent thing people will have to draw upon will be our last war, which will have been my war. And my belief is if, you know, I go totally tight-lipped about it and never say a thing, there'll be no reference point onto what war is like. Um, but I also think that there's a difference now generationally too, because, you know, when I took off that uniform in Fallujah, you know, I was a professional and I knew I was going back to war. And, you know, in the first world war, you know, those were citizen soldiers signed up to do something very specific, fight a very specific conflict. Uh, and the nature of how our society engages with war, to Sugi's comment on the draft, has changed a lot. I don't know that it's necessarily changed for the better either. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us. It's really helpful to hear your expertise. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And listeners, if you want to hear more, go check out Elliot's new book, Places and Names on War, Revolution, and Returning. And now we're thrilled to welcome Anuradha Bhagwati, author of Unbecoming, a Memoir of Disobedience. Anuradha is a writer, activist, yoga and meditation teacher, and also a Marine Corps veteran. She founded the Service Women's Action Network, SWAN, which brought national attention to sexual violence in the military and helped repeal the ban on women in combat. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Politico, Foreign Affairs, and the New Republic. And her book got a rave review in the New York Times, and I was the reviewer, so I'm especially excited to have her with us. Anuradha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Uh, You and our previous guest, Elliot Ackerman, are both Marine Corps veterans. Your book's subtitle is A Memoir of Disobedience, uh, but the military, in particular the Marines, are famous for discipline and obedience. Uh, I wondered if, for listeners who haven't yet read your book, could you talk a little bit about what led you to join the, the, the military and how you got that title? Yeah, so I joined the military in my early 20s and... Um, I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants. Uh, my parents uh, came here about 50, 60 years ago, and um, we're pretty traditional parents. Uh, I'm an only child, and they had put a lot of academic expectations on me, and kind of a typical Asian immigrant experience. With um, what I didn't have much of a voice in my family, um, and I you know, as they were navigating what it was like to be American um, and assimilating, I was also navigating what it meant to have Indian parents, but being surrounded by uh, mostly white kids in my schools and um, not really feeling Indian, not really knowing what that meant. I identified as bisexual by the time I was probably 18 or 19, but was deeply in the closet. My parents had shamed me for that when I fell in love with my best friend who was a girl. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of pressure on me. Um, you know, they didn't want me to play basketball, even though that was just like my favorite thing in the world to do. Um, so I really wasn't allowed to kind of do do the things that made me happy. <laughs> I was just I was just supposed to go to school and do really well, get straight A's. Uh, and so the Marine Corps was kind of it wasn't just a rebellion; it was my freedom. Uh, it was something my parents couldn't touch at all. They were um, they are both academics and uh, fiercely so. Like they live in the world of ideas on the ivory tower and. Um, this was like the one place I knew they couldn't touch me or control me. So there's one passage that I wanted to ask you about that I really thought was interesting because I have a novel that I wrote uh, after being a reporter in Iraq called The Good Lieutenant that has a female protagonist and she's uh, she's in the army, um, but she's an officer. And um, you have this passage that you talk about after going to see G.I. Jane, where you remember this, you talk about this scene where Demi Moore, like, Beats up her. Uh, what, what is Viggo Mortensen's character? He's like her trainer or something like that. He's like the master chief. Yeah, 
and and then says to him, suck my dick. And you say, you write, her team goes wild. She's become one of them while also rising above them. I thought that was really an interesting passage because a lot of the women that I interviewed and talked to about the book talked about how learning to talk like guys do or in the Trumpian phrase, locker room talk was part of them learning to command men, but also (laughs) was a loss in certain ways. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, assimilating to a patriarchal institution is something that most women learn to do uh, if they want to follow their dreams and their yeah. dreams lead them into those institutions. Right? Yeah. It's, it's 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 something you you learn without hesitation. Right? You have to learn it in order to be accepted. Um, and and oftentimes, maybe all the time, it's it's an, a legitimate, authentic source of pride. You know, when you get there. I, I spoke like an entirely different human when I was in the Marines. And even afterwards, I had to unlearn some of the language because I wanted to unlearn it, not because I had to. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of foul mouth and, um, you know, it's, it's a foul mouth that's tinged with misogyny, sometimes racism, sometimes homophobia. It's, it's tinged with a lot of bad stuff. It has yeah. bad so, you know, m- most of the like the most delicious phrases are are tinged with putting somebody else down, oftentimes women. And so, uh, you know, it's loaded. It's loaded terminology um, and it's it's deliberately put together because it, it didn't it's not the same thing as real power, real authority, real confidence. It's it's kind of a short term high. And yet, yeah, as you point out, like pretty classic code switching. And so, and the Marine Corps is famous, um, I mean, at least as far as I'm concerned, in in terms of being the kind of the most rigorous, um, the sort of the toughest branch of the military. And towards the end of your book, you say that women who want to join the American military would do better to consider one of the other branches. And I wonder, you know, your version of rebellion was to run towards the, the, an alternative, tough set of, um, set of rules and set of discipline, one that, one that had its own hypocrisy within it. But how did you end up picking the Marines in particular? They were the biggest jerks. That's what it seems like <laughs> in the book. Yeah. I mean, even Marines would call themselves the biggest jerks as a, as a matter of pride. But I think that I had a streak of masochism in me. I, I certainly still have some of that. I'm still working on it. Um, but the thing that was the most extreme, uh, you know, the branch that was had the most discipline and, you know, you were guaranteed to sort of wreck your body the most. I mean, it, it kind of, it, it was a different version of the authoritarian culture I grew up with. It, it, it seemed to all fit into the same worldview. Yeah. Um, you know, like study until you crack or, you know, exert yourself physically until you break. It's all part of the same worldview. So it's a focus on excellence. Uh, the Marines are all about that for sure. But I mean, you take a typical kind of tiger mom and dad, they're all about that as well, just in a different a different venue. I think I, I would have definitely succeeded more in the other branches of service because they are better integrated. Uh, they are they are better institutions when it comes to um, a healthy workplace. You see across the other service branches that women are in more positions of power. You have more female generals in the other branches of service. The, the Marine Corps is still very much segregated um, across, you know, gender as well as race. You know, this episode, it, we're talking about the military under Trump, and you you weren't in the Marines during his uh, presidency. But, you know, it feels to me like 
I felt like when I was writing about women in the military, like there was this story of progression that had been happening um, in the army and that movement toward allowing women to be in combat, for instance. But, you know, first of all, you write a lot in the book about sexual uh, harassment and the Marine Corps' failure to deal with it. And the president has a long history connected to sexual harassment. Also, he has said that he's not really necessarily in favor of, like, for instance, women being in combat. I wondered if you could talk first about that aspect of your book, which is a big part of it, but also if you feel like there is a risk under this current administration of some of the gains that women have made in the military being lost. Yeah, it's a direct connection. I think anybody who says that that we're making too much of the president's comments on women and then how men behave toward women within the military is really naive. Um, I mean, one thing that we pride ourselves on as officers in the Marines and in the other branches is is that if if we are good at our jobs, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, then our our troops have respect for us that there's 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 good order and discipline within the unit. And if we do something along the lines of saying grab women by their pussies or um you know, I wouldn't rape her because, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she's not my type, then, you know, this literally, it trickles down to the troops. Um, And unfortunately, within months of the president being elected, we saw just that happen within the Marines and the other branches where this huge scandal, Marines United, erupted, where over 30,000 mostly Marines and also veterans and other members of the other branches uh, were... Uh, stalking, engaging in revenge porn against mostly women in the military, also some civilian women without their permission, right? So nude photos were nude photos were posted on this site. Um, some some videos as well, sex videos without the women's permission, um, and it required what I would call an act of whistleblowing to get this out to the public. Um, where a former Marine infantryman broke the story, and then of course he was also the victim of uh, death threats. He and his family. Uh, of course, the women on, on the site were victims of rape threats and, and so on. It, it, it sort of it, it was a moment that strangely surprised the Marine Corps, even though this kind of thing is very much the culture of the Marine Corps when it comes to misogyny and racism and homophobia. It was like all the worst of the worst uh, on this site. Um, and I directly connect that to the president's comments. I mean, he's a commander in chief, right? I mean, he literally dictates the, the the personality and the moral character of the armed forces. And so, I you know, I am extremely concerned about rates of assault and harassment in the military. They certainly haven't gone down. Um, I mean, all evidence suggests that they've gone up in the last couple of years. I had a a friend who I met originally in Iraq in 2006. She was a captain. She was very helpful in creating, in in informing my book. And then she is now a colonel. Uh, At the time, she was not open about her relationship. She was, she was gay. She was married to, she, she was a lesbian. She was married to a woman. But the don't ask, don't tell policy went away. She could become open about her relationship. That was all fine. Um, By the time that I saw her again in 2016, when the book was out, she was, you know, her wife came to the reading that we did. And yet, when I talked to her recently, within the last year, she said, this is the first time that I have started to have people politically come after me. And she Mm -hmm. felt like it was due to her... Uh, relationship 
and her gender. And, and, I, and, and she didn't say this, but it's hard for me not to connect that to the current administration in the same way that you were doing. Like, oh, it just happened to show up now. That's interesting. Yeah, my heart goes out to her. I, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, what, one, one measure of kind of the, the temperature within the military on all these issues, um, on inclusivity, on acceptance of people who, who are different than the status quo, is, is military chat rooms or, you know, your average Facebook group. I mean, this, the filth that I have seen in the last couple of years since the last presidential election has made me sick to my stomach. And white supremacist language is thick in these in these conversations. And so I've had to distance myself from veteran friends. Like, I never thought I would have to. Um, you know, unfortunately, those of us who are brown or queer or female or transgender, I mean, you name it, right? And so some of us are several of those, those identities. Uh, uh, we are seen as a threat to uh, whatever the administration represents. And so it doesn't, it doesn't matter if we've taken an oath to protect and defend the country. It doesn't matter, right? That, that, that's not seen as something that's noble. <laughs> we just don't belong then. In your book, you actually have some scenes in which, you know, um, for example, you attempting to hold someone accountable for something and then that person holding your personal life over your head in some way. So it seems to also predate Trump. Um, and it seems when thinking about um, what you were saying about Asian immigrant culture and the Marines, I mean, this sort of notion of don't complain outside the chain of command. <laughs> um, there's a scene in which, um, you know, you complain and uh, the complaint is sort of kicked up and then someone says to you, you know, don't you dare speak to anyone outside of your chain of command about this. And this seems to me like one of the main ways in which women in the military are differently vulnerable than, say, civilians. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, there are certain things that make the, the military situation unique and, and more hostile and um, more sinister. Uh, which is that you're you're really locked into this system. Uh, it, uh, in the outside world, in the civilian world, the most horrendous things will happen, and yet legally you have the right to quit your job. You have certain one hopes access to friends and family. Right in the in the in the military, um, you cannot quit your job. You'll you could be criminally charged for not showing up to work in the civilian system. In other words, you can you can sue your employer. Right. You could sue Harvey Weinstein for, you know, attempting to do a variety of things to you. Um, you can't do that in the military. The Supreme Court has basically made it impossible for service members to sue the military or any member in it um, for negligence. Culturally speaking, anytime you go against the grain in the military, you become a whistleblower. So then all eyes are on you. You stick out like a sore thumb. And of course, if you're female, queer, black or brown, right, like all the things, then you're really sticking out. And you already have, you already are sticking out, right? So it's, there's so much pressure on you then um, to sort of do the right thing. You know, it, 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 there's so much pressure on victims to report their assaults. And you, you sort of got to wonder, like, are you kidding? Right. If it's not safe and you've already been violated, you've already been hurt by a brother in arms. You know, you really you have to consider your safety coming forward. You do have a series of descriptions toward the end of your book where you talk about Trump. I wondered if you could read that for us. Sure. Yeah. So I'm reading a passage uh, in the last chapter of the book. Uh, which really discusses uh, what it's like to make that transition from a, 
an Obama presidency to a Trump presidency from the perspective of, of veterans and service members. Um, I, I certainly saw a cultural shift, so that, that's what this passage is about. Civilian advocates who knew so much better had dropped the ball. They'd forgotten us. They'd forgotten that women in the military faced more burdens than women in the civilian workplace and had fewer legal options to address assault and harassment. That without civilian oversight, service members were fending for themselves in a system that literally owned their bodies. They'd left them to fend against generals. They'd left them in Trump's hands. In September 2016, I attended a live town hall with Secretary Clinton and Donald Trump on the USS Intrepid, the World War II aircraft carrier docked off the west side of Manhattan. I had every reason not to attend. I had retired from professional advocacy for good reason. By attending an event where veterans would be posturing around powerful people, I was revisiting old wounds. Folks would be clamoring for photos, chumming it up with bros, and sizing me up from my ethnically ambiguous features to my chest on downward. On top of this, I was burdened by the certainty that I'd be one of the few women and people of color at the forum. Even before neo-Nazis rallied in Virginia, I was sure of one thing I'd suspected before, but never fully known till now. In the United States, more than I was anything else, I was brown, more than I was female, more than I was queer, and more than I would ever be a veteran. This was never a choice, but by now I had learned to embrace my brownness like a badge of honor. I was no longer shortening my first name. Half of the folks in this room were voting for Trump. Some part of me knew that being in there, some part of me knew that being there in my body and in my skin was important. I sat with Hillary's people in the front row. Clinton's portion of the town hall was largely unremarkable, but then Trump arrives with an entourage of family members in haute couture and red, red carpet hair. The glitz and glamour was starkly out of place with the feel of the room, in which the results of war were, if not the point, then at least the backdrop, with several veterans in wheelchairs or carrying canes, and most of us dealing with one thing or another. Like we were a distant idea on the horizon, Trump called veterans them and they so many times in 30 minutes that I wanted to get up and say, Jesus Christ, sir, they're right here in front of your face. Matt Lauer was hosting the candidates and eventually turned to us for Q&A. An older African-American man stood and was introduced as a former Marine. As the cameras rolled, he said, I have a daughter who's interested in joining the service, but when she researched the military, she saw the stats on sexual assault and decided not to go. He continued, I have a concern about the rape of women in our armed forces. As president, what specifically would you do to support all victims of sexual assault in the military? Trump was nodding, long and slow, as if to convey he understood the girl's decision. While my head spun, was this really happening? Had our work gone so mainstream that a playboy celebrity real estate tycoon turned presidential candidate was about to formulate a response before tens of millions of people about military sexual violence? Your daughter is absolutely right. It is a massive problem. While my mind, raised, while my mind raced between Verklempton stunned, Lauer dove in, reminding Trump that he had tweeted the following only three years earlier. 26,000 unreported sexual assaults in the military, only 238 convictions. What do these geniuses expect when they put men and women together? Suddenly, service women, 
Suddenly, service women's welfare was in the hands of a treacherous billionaire. Some of us had practically thrown ourselves on pyres to draw attention to this issue. This guy had done nothing but objectify women for most of his adult life, and he was now commanding the attentions of tens of millions on the topic. I was sickened and transfixed. God, this was great television. I wanted to vomit. As we held our breath, Trump defended his tweet as absolutely correct, causing a stir in the crowd that, despite all our military training, could not be fully repressed and provoking an explosion on Twitter. Within five minutes, I'd witnessed Donald Trump say more about sexual violence in the military than any sitting president. Barack Obama, a darling of feminists, had said little and done next to nothing. Was Trump for real? What the hell would all of this mean for us? I thought I'd seen it all. And then, one month later, came Pussygate. Thank you so much. Um, (laughs) Crazy passage, that is. Yeah. (laughs) Surreal. It's shocking to me. I mean, the whole thing, the Trump, the, the, the tweet is crazy. But then the fact that Obama didn't talk about this is also crazy. It's so crazy. And the thing I like, you know, I feel like a lone voice in the wilderness on this, but every time somebody says something about Joe Biden and, you know, the Violence Against Women Act, like I have to remind people that Joe Biden, you know, military father, like he's just loved by everyone, allegedly, like did even less than Obama. And it's so I I, I don't know what to make of this. <laughs> God damn it, Democrats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. really a, a lack of spine when it comes to supporting women. I mean, it reminds me also of, I, I mean, I wish I could have had you read like the next five pages because, I mean, the whole book is fantastic. Um, listeners, go and get it. There's this paragraph later on, of course, pick up the news any day of the year. And it's hard not to think that Mattis, and here you're talking about um, former Defense Secretary James Mad Dog Mattis, a four-star general um, who is one of, who's in the Trump administration, Chief of Staff John Kelly and General Joseph Dunford, a trio of Marine men hard as nails, are the only civilized beings guarding us from the president's madness, but they are not above our scrutiny simply because their boss is madder than they ever will be. Let's hold our standards higher than this. And so, like, this was one of the things that I so but appreciated. Mattis quit. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, there was this sort of rhetoric going on, like, the you know, the, the generals are going to keep us safe from Trump the lunatic, right? And I think that one of the things the book does is sort of have this really even-handed way of critiquing, of noting that not no one is above critique, including these generals. At the end of last month, NPR reported that Trump wanted to get rid of protections for undocumented family members of active troops. It was previously they were they've had protection against getting deported, um, and and there's some plans to perhaps get rid of that. And then also some immigrants who enlisted in the military as a path to citizenship are being discharged very abruptly and finding themselves kind of, um, well, you know, up shit Creek in terms of, in terms of getting citizenship and, and how is this going to change the military? I mean, it's already changed the military in the sense that, and this relates to our previous discussion, that folks who never wanted immigrants to join in the first place, or, you know, are, are emboldened again. It changes the culture of the military, obviously for the folks who are getting kicked out. I mean, it's a nightmare. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about this type of policy decision is we're dealing with a military that is still an all-volunteer force. And this kind of this kind of policy making cannot last unless you want to draft, right? So you've got volunteers, healthy, capable, capable, able-bodied volunteers. Some of them may be undocumented. Some of them may be immigrants. Uh, certainly many of, many of us are women, right? Many of us are queer or transgender, right? You, you can't, you can't 
you can't pick and choose when you have an all volunteer force, right? Or we won't have a military. And most folks serving in the military would agree with this, right? So it's it's a lot of um, it's a lot of arrogance, a lot of hubris coming from the White House. But I, I don't think it's sustainable. But you know, I mean, one thing I have seen—I uh, don't know if you can call this progress—but it, it, I feel like military leaders, generally speaking, are like the last line of defense um, in terms of white supremacists, um, you know, being emboldened by the by the president or the administration right now. So you have seen this uptick in 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 Nazis organizing within the military. You've seen swastikas being posted on, on the internet, you know, amongst service members, um, really like horrific statements left, right, and center. Um, but but military leadership is cracking down, even if the administration's not cracking down, right? So like these guys hopefully are, and I've seen this, are being booted out of the military as they are discovered. Um, but, you know, is, is the president doing anything? Is he responsible for that? Absolutely not, right? These are just decent officers doing the right thing. You know, I grew up in a family where our most of our relationship with the military and is the Sri Lankan military and thinking about, or the Indian military and thinking about, um, you know, what it's like to be in a place where um, soldiers from another part of the same country or from a foreign country are have come to your home and you talk about the ways in which, and there's some striking scenes in the book of servicemen interacting with civilian women around, around the world. And I thought that that kind of frankness was really, was really important. Um, were you shocked the first time that you, you, you write in particular about Thailand? Um, and were you shocked when you saw some of what was going on or was it just sort of what you expected? I think the scale of, commercial sexual exploitation and sexual trafficking, sex trafficking in, um, in Thailand and East Asia, it, it, the scale is so enormous. I, n- nothing could have prepared me for that. I was shocked and I, I would, I was shell shocked. I would even say I was traumatized, like not really knowing how to respond. Um, and I, 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 it's, it's part of like the, it's a rite of passage for most men in the military that certainly that I've served with. Um, if, if guys aren't talking about it, it's a sort of Las Vegas attitude, you know, but they, they certainly know about it if they haven't experienced it themselves. Um, it's really, uh, I, I mean, I almost don't have the words to describe it clearly. I had the words to write about it, but, um, it, it took many years to, to even, feel comfortable, right? Because there's a lot of shame I carry as someone who could do nothing about it. I mean, it's such an overwhelming, um, it was an overwhelming experience to see sort of tens of thousands of women and girls being exploited by your brothers in arms uh, all at once, right? Like just left, right, and center. And um, yeah, like for me, that was, that was, uh, that was a legacy that I don't think the military has even begun to reckon with. I haven't, I haven't heard men who've uh, served. I haven't heard an honest conversation. Um, I mean, I'm hoping, my hope is that it happens at some point, you know, whether it's in a therapy session or with a priest or a best friend back home, that honest conversations are had about the kinds of relationships that, that men engage in. Um, when they're in uniform, because they're very harmful relationships. Um, 
and very little, you know, sort of even if you aren't engaging in sexual exploitation of local women and girls, um, you're, you're certainly part of the fabric of, of that world. Um, it's all around you. Very, very little is said to stop it uh, or to challenge it. Um, yeah, it makes me worry. It really does. Like, what does that do to somebody's psyche when they come back home? And, you know, you have a wife and children and, you know, yeah. things change. I, we are all, we're all sponges, you know, we are products of our environment, particularly when we say nothing, um, when we are kind of passive observers. Uh, that also, I think, is harmful to us. Yeah, I mean, those sections were really, really hard to read. And I mean, one of your responses as you left the Marine Corps was to found SWAN. And I think, you know, just as you described your experience in the military with this incredible frankness, um, you know, I haven't been in the military, I have been an activist. And I thought that your descriptions of activism were also just kind of, they were just dead on in terms of you know, like any other kinds of organizations, the world of nonprofits and activism, even when you have the best intentions, like, say, addressing social problems um, like sexual violence in the military or sexism or misogyny um, on a broader level, you can also find those problems sometimes within organizations, um, certain kinds of hypocrisy or personal politics getting in the way of getting things done. If you could go back and give your younger activist self or my younger activist self some advice what would you what would you say to yourself as you were founding that organization to kind of deal with what your feelings were about some of these problems you know I had so much energy when I got out of the military um and this isn't just a oh I feel old (laughs) reflection it's um I think I didn't really you know when you have that much energy and purpose and passion about wanting to fix something that's broken. And that, that was me for years. Um, you don't realize when you're tired, right? It, it sort of, it creeps up on you. You know, you might actually be exhausted and still, you know, going a million miles an hour. Um, you, you might be really uh, efficiently getting work done or so you think. And in the meantime, your body's just crashing. Um, and it will catch up with all of us, even those of us who are really young and healthy. Um, Burnout is so, it's so rapid. It's so common among activists. And, um, you know, all of us are like, we're, we're working on hard issues. You know, these causes are, uh, it's like moving mountains, right? Some of them are really old problems. Um, you know, misogyny doesn't get fixed in a day. It doesn't get fixed in 10 years either. So could I, could I have paced myself differently? Absolutely. You know, I, I ran my body into the ground for sure. Um, I think there's this myth among activists that that's actually the noble way to do our work, right? Like if we're exhausted, then we're worthy. <laughs> um, and it's it's a hoax. I think it's also, it's it's like one of the ways that, the, that powerful systems that we're trying to change end up winning. <laughs> it, it the, the systems keep on exhausting us uh, because we don't realize we need to nourish ourselves along the way. Um, it's it's just very hard work. So I would have told myself and younger versions of all of my friends and colleagues, like, God, do what you love. Don't forget to you know, bring some joy into every day. You know, sleep, sleep, <laughs> eat well, right? Like, see the people you love. 
Don't be like, no, the work is more important than anything. It's actually not. It's just not. <laughs> and it's not going to, you're not going to be able to sustain that pace. You know, if you don't do the things you love, see the people you love and remember why you're in it in the first place. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. It's really been a treat. We want to encourage our listeners to check out Unbecoming. A memoir of disobedience. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We want to thank our excellent intern producers, Caleb Olson and Nick Shump, who are MFA students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. Take a few seconds to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Here's how to do it. Type the show's name into your Apple Podcast app search bar on your phone, select the show, scroll down past all the episodes to the bottom, and you'll find the rating function. If you don't want to write something, just punch a number of stars in, five, and you're done. It helps us out. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod and on Twitter at FNFTalk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading.